Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have about 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of November 2021 and this is episode 229. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to doctoral candidate David Katz, studying at the University of Stellenbosch, about his recent research into Jan Smuts and the conduct of operations in German East Africa during the First World War. David spoke to me from his home in Johannesburg, South Africa. Hi David, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the campaign in German East Africa during the Great War? Thanks for t- Tom for, for giving me this platform just to talk a little bit about German East Africa. Um, I've come by, for, by a rather convoluted uh, sort of process. I started life out as a chartered accountant back in the, in the, in the early 80s <laughs> for, my, for my punishment. And uh, I've always been interested in war and warfare through the years, um, practicing as a chartered accountant. And uh, I served in the military, I still am serving in the military, and uh, I've been there for 30 years. So I've always had an affinity for military affairs and, 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 and military things. And uh, in 2010, I had a chance to uh, study at the uh, the military academy here at Saldana Military Academy, which is a faculty, the military science faculty of Stellenbosch University, which was a fantastic opportunity for me to do my master's, which I acquired luckily enough with, uh, with, with cum laude. And uh, I'm now registered for a doctorate at the military academy which i'm shortly going to complete i'll be handing in my manuscript in july sometime and the doctorate involves uh jan smuts and his efforts during the great war in africa and um so it's a rather convoluted uh, way of coming to it uh, i did start off my masters involved uh, the south africans in the western desert against rommel and uh, i concentrated quite a lot on the military doctrine behind that whole conflict and there was a it was a, a definite uh, conflict of doctrine between the British, the Germans, and the South Africans. And that fascinated me. And, 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 I, and, and I wanted to go back to the roots of why South African military doctrine is different from British uh, military doctrine. And to do that, one has to go back to the First World War, and one has to go even beyond that, back to, back to the South African wars and, 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 and the First World War and that type of thing. And that's, that's how I sort of came to this, uh, going backwards from Second World War studies to the First World War trying to find the roots of, 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 of South African military doctrine and how the Union Defence Force developed and also how Jan Smuts developed as a general. Right, before we start, could you um, tell us where German East Africa was and how and when it became a German colony before the First World War? Yeah, German East Africa today is described by Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda. Those are the countries that make up uh, what German East Africa was back in those days. Uh, it was a colony of, Ger- of Germany and it was founded in 1885. It was all part of the scramble of, uh, for Africa, where uh, all, all the latecomers to the scramble, uh, Germany, Belgium and those countries, came in and started grabbing little pieces of Africa. And Germany had great desires to build an empire, which they called Mittelafrika. Excuse the pronunciation, I don't know if I got that one right. Um, 
where they look to build this empire stretching from the, from the west coast to the east coast of Africa and, to, and, and German East Africa was going to be part of it. So they had, they had these colonial desires on, on, on this side. Counterbalanced with that was Jan Smuts's own desires for a greater South Africa that would stretch right up to, to, to these areas in, in Middle Africa and also make the make contiguous a dream a dream of Cecil John Rhodes for many many years make contiguous the British holdings from Cairo to Cape Town. So in fact, this German East Africa stood in the way of it. It was the one piece of territory that blocked uh, uh, the, the British having uh, a, contigu a contiguous uh, colonial interest from Cape to Cairo. So that's also very interesting. What is the current historiography around the uh, German East African campaign and why has this campaign been so neglected by historians? Is something I know very, very little about. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you're not alone. Well, first of all, we're up against the fact that it was what one would call a mere sideshow in the, in the greater picture of what happened in the First World War, because the numbers involved were, were, were minuscule and small compared to what was happening on the Western and the Eastern fronts in Europe. And that's what it was called. It was called a sideshow and neglected because of that. Um, but in Africa, it's certainly not a sideshow. It is very, very important. It's an important campaign for Africa, for Africans, and for South Africa. And it deserves to be in, in uh, to be recognised as such. Many, many atrocities were were were, were committed on 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 indigenous uh, local black populations in Tanzania, used as porters. Uh, the numbers that died uh, in in that war, or or, or were, were, were were villages burnt down and and just totally disrupted. Are huge. We can't even put a number to it. But some historians are now putting it in the millions of people dead, disrupted, and uh, that type of destruction continued for many, many years after the war. We still feel the effects today. So it's certainly not a sideshow to Africans, and it deserves to be uh, brought into the forefront of certainly of African history. Historiography, very, very interesting. And I'm going to limit myself on the historiography to to the role of Jan Smuts because that's where we're going to be concentrating tonight. Jan Smuts and his war in German East Africa. And unfortunately, um, the historiography has not lent itself to giving us a true picture of, of what happened in German East Africa campaign-wise. And we start off with the official histories. Now, official histories are very, very important because they're the first shot at telling us what happened in the, in, in the campaign. And they need to be looked at as such. Unfortunately, when it comes to the German East African campaign, these histories done by South African uh, official historians, I'll name them uh, uh, Collier Hugh Wyndham and a British historian called Charles Horden, uh, wrote some magnificent uh, uh, official histories. Unfortunately, what's a, what they're supposed to be the foundation stone where following historians will build upon. And they are usually the first word of what the campaign is all about. And a lot of these official histories have become the last word, actually, of what the campaign was all about. So nothing really, not a lot in certain areas has been built, certainly when it comes to Jan Smuts. I'm not talking about the, the rest of the imperial forces and their history in Africa. I'm talking about Jan Smuts and his South Africans in, 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 in Germany, East Africa. Um, a lot has been left that's been undiscovered uh, and not built on from the official histories. Now, the Germans also wrote some official histories that are very, very interesting. Uh, the one is by Ludwig Bull. It's a, can we call it a semi-official history? It's not, a, it's not a, a full official history. German, by the way, German documents were destroyed, as you may well know, in Potsdam during 44-45, during firebombing over there. So a lot of the German official histories of the World War I have disappeared, uh, including uh, a lot of what happened in Africa. So all we can go on 
in uh, on the, from the German point of view, from the other side of the hill is Ludwig Bull and Paul von Leto Forbeck, who commanded the German forces. Um, so that's not a lot to go by. Now, there's a lot of many, uh, there's these many allied personnel records that we can have a look at. Um, something that's not being looked at and not being tapped into is the regimental histories. There are many, many regimental histories on the allied side, and they are a great source of, of, of founding out what happened at more or less a tactical level, it takes it lower. These official histories more or less look at the operational level of war, and uh, these regimental histories look at the tactical side of it. Um, let's come to the contemporary historians, because that's where I've got a bit of a bone to pick. Um, contemporary historians, such as Charles Miller, Edward Pace, uh, some of the modern ones, Hugh Strong, Ross Anderson, and Sampson, have come to rely not only on the official histories, but I've come to rely on, on, on two authors that were quite damaging to the reputation of, of, of Jan Smuts. The one was Richard Meinertzagen, who was an intelligence officer in German East Africa, and he later was, was found out to be uh, a fraud. I think Brian Garfield, if I, if I remember the author's name correctly, was the one exp who exposed him as being a fraud. So we can't really take a lot of what Richard Meinertzagen said for granted, and a lot of it may have been written after the event. We just don't know. But unfortunately, a lot of the current history written about Jan Smuts and his exploit in German East Africa rely heavily on the diaries of Richard Meinertzagen. Another one was a gentleman called H.C. Armstrong, who wrote a book called Grey Steel, that totally denigrated the, uh, and he wrote in about 1936, 1937, if I recall correctly, totally denigrated the role that Jan Smuts had to play in German East Africa. And these two books, unfortunately, have shaped the modern historiography of what people feel about Jan Smuts and his exploits in German East Africa. Um, there's tons of primary documentation on, on, on German East Africa, which reside at the fantastic United Kingdom archives, the national archives there, as well as in South Africa. And there's military archives in South Africa, the director of, of uh, defense archives. And there is a plethora of stuff which you can never in, in 20 lifetimes get through. I've tackled some of it, and there's a lot of information there. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the modern historians have not gone to these documents or interrogated it properly, especially the South African ones. So without getting into any more detail on the histori historiography, you can see this, this, there are huge lacunas and huge gaps in the historiography, painting an incorrect picture of Jan Smuts and his generalship in Germany. So before we get to Jan Smuts and his operations in German East Africa, can you tell us what the plan for the German defence of this territory was and what was the nature and extent of the topography and geography of that area? Well, first of all, let's, let's look at the topography and the geography of the area. Um, it's, it's very difficult terrain. It incorporates Kilimanjaro that we all know about. It's quite rough terrain. It's very mountainous in certain areas. It's got a lot of desert. There's a lot of jungle. And uh, the terrain varies, and it's very, very difficult terrain. Uh, in those days, not a lot of infrastructure, not a lot of roads. Um, it's also ridden in those days with quite a lot of tropical diseases that uh, that 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 were uh, fatal and deadly to the uh, the horses, the mules, the, the oxen that the South Africans brought with them on campaign, and also damaging and fatal to to a lot of the men while on campaign who got who got very very ill. In fact, most of the casualties that Jan Smuts suffered. Um, during his tenure in uh, 1916 and, and, and early 1970, was due to mainly disease and not due to enemy action. So the main enemy was the disease and uh, and the weather. Lots of rain also. 
these two different seasons. There's a coastal rainy season and there's an inland rainy season that don't occur at the same time. And these are heavy rains, which put an end to all types of mobility with mud and whatever. So it's a nightmare. The terrain is quite something to negotiate and a huge nightmare. And I think it took the South Africans by surprise when they arrived there. And certainly Paul von Letter Forbeck, who was a very wily commander of the German forces, took advantage of all this terrain took advantage of the, of, of, of the diseases, and we'll, we'll come to see why he coped a little bit better um, than the South Africans did. Now, for, uh, what was the German plan at the end of the day? First of all, there was a clash between um, uh, Paul von Hector Forbeck and Governor Schnee of the German colony. Governor Schnee wanted to keep his colony intact, and he was trying to invoke some, some clauses that they had on, on neutrality, and I'm not going to get into that, but that's where he was trying to go with it. He was trying to keep the colony neutral, to, to save the infrastructure of the colony. Whereas Letter Forbeck had a totally different idea. He wanted to attract as many troops away from Europe as possible from the Allies and, and, and keep them occupied in Tanzania. That was his, that, that was his uh, war effort that he wanted to do. And he did it reasonably successfully, I must tell you. Um, so he first, when he set out, uh, he had 3,000 white German officers and he recruited 17,000 what they called black recruits, which were named Ascaris. Now, these, these black troops were particularly robust to the conditions, obviously being indigenous to the land. They were particularly ro robust and could handle the conditions better than any white troops that came from South Africa. So they were less susceptible, although the, the, the German medical was also better than Africans, but they were less susceptible to the diseases. So these 20,000 uh, 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 German troops, their plan was as follows. They grabbed as much uh, British territory as they could in the early days. They fortified and held onto this territory, so they conducted a persisting campaign on British territory in East Africa. And using that as a base, they raided into East Africa, disrupting the, the British communications, like the railway lines and that type of thing. And they made a nuisance of themselves, 1914, 1915, until Smuts arrived. So that was his strategy. Once he, uh, Smuts presented him with an overwhelming force, he was going to withdraw slowly, strategically his plans to withdraw slowly into the interior, uh, put up as, as much resistance as possible, take those little opportunities that he could, where using his railway lines and, and, and his, his internal lines of communication to pick off the South Africans where he could, where he could outnumber them, gather his forces because he had a, an advantage of internal lines of communication and, and try and cause as much damage as possible and last out as long as possible. So that was that was their plan. Smuts, on the other hand, let's talk a little bit about his plan, uh, was looking, his, his whole strategic uh, idea was to conquer the territory as quickly as possible. Keep in mind that he had no idea in 1915 or 16 how long the war was going to last. There was talks that the war had only a few months to go uh, and, and that type of thing. So he wanted to quickly conquer as much territory as possible, as fast as possible, in order to acquire it so that he could use this as a negotiating tool to acquire other territory from the Portuguese. He was going to do a whole swap. Don't want to get too much into that. But that was very important. That was Schweitzer's major objective. It wasn't the annihilation of the German forces. His objective was to quickly as possible conquer as much territory as possible. So that was his objective. And letter for this objective was to trade uh, space for time. I hope that's explained it. So in 1916, Jan Smuts takes command of Allied forces in the theatres. What sort of problems did he inherit? And what was his sort of general position it, uh, when he took command? 
Okay, first of all, I've alluded, I've alluded to some of what I've told you about military doctrine, and that's where that's where I've gone on this. I've tried to analyze this campaign uh, as uh, we're trying to get behind the differing military do, military doctrines, forces that took part in it, which is very, very important. I don't think too many other people have taken this approach. So there was a definite, when he arrived there, there was a definite clash of military doctrine. And certainly the British had no understanding of the way the South Africans fought or wished to fight. Uh, and let's discuss that just a little bit because this is one of the major things that 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 that, that he had to confront when he arrived over there. So Smuts was a maneuverist. He believed in maneuver warfare. So without getting into too much detail as to what maneuver warfare is all about, let's 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 look at look at what the British looked at. The British the British were looking to annihilate the German army using a lot of frontal attacks, using a lot of attrition type warfare. They were well prepared to do that type of thing. The South Africans were not prepared to do that. They didn't want to waste lives unnecessarily in frontal attacks, allow what we see on the Western Front. So Smuts would rather have maneuvered, in other words, in enveloping maneuvers, uh, move the Germans away from the prepared position, force them to go and fight in positions that they were that they didn't want to fight in. That's what he was looking at. He didn't want to go and expend lives in futile frontal attacks. Now, the British couldn't understand this. They had no understanding of what he was trying to do, and they saw what he was doing was just a waste of time. So all they saw was that letter fallback time after time escaped Smuts's pincer movements and that type of thing and lived to fight another day. But in the meantime, Smuts was conquering a lot of territory and dislodging the Germans from very, very strong defensive positions and hopefully saving South African lives or just the lives of the Imperial troops in the process. So that was the first challenge that Smuts had when he arrived there, was to try and bring his doctrine to the British who didn't understand it. Um, weather and disease, we've discussed that also. Uh, 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 Smuts didn't handle the, 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 the disease aspect of it very, very well. It was a huge challenge to him when he arrived there. He was somewhat misled about uh, how this would affect his animals. And let's not forget that being a maneuverist, he relied heavily on his mounted infantry, heavily on his mounted infantry, Throughout the campaign, they were very, very important. And not only were the men decimated through disease on the uh, uh, through the campaign, but the but the, the the horses and the draft animals and all that type of thing were absolutely annihilated. And these horses had to be replaced on a constant basis. I mean, the, the numbers of, of of animals that died on this campaign is is quite unbelievable when we start putting some figures to it. So that's a challenge that he faced, and he didn't he didn't handle that 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 challenge too well. Nor may I say that did, did many of the other generals who, who who took part in it. They all didn't come off scot uh, scot clear on some of the investigations that happened uh, pertaining to the uh, uh, to, to the disease. So there was poor medical uh, uh, facilities, veterinary facilities. The logistics were difficult in this type of terrain. These are challenges that he had to overcome. Poor road infrastructures, d uh, uh, dense bush, deserts. We've spoken about the rough terrain. These are all the challenges that he had. And, he, and the biggest challenge of all was a, was a wily enemy with very capable troops that Smuts under, underestimated to start off with. Um, the, the, the South Africans decided they're not going to have black troops on campaign due to political reasons. Here we have Letter Forbeck with his black troops who were impeccably trained, uh, very loyal, and very capable fighters. And uh, they put up a 
tough, tough resistance, much to the surprise of the Africans. So those those were the biggest challenges that uh, Smuts faced on campaign. So tell me about the operations that Smuts launches once he takes command and how successful do you think he was in achieving his overall objective? Okay, so we have to understand, I think, Tom, before we even start, that some of the some people must understand the objectives. I've alluded to it, I've alluded to it, and I think it's very, very important. Smuts had the objective, the overall objective, conquering as much territory of German East Africa as possible in the shortest space of time. A secondary objective, obviously, was the destruction of the German forces, but his primary objective was to capture as much territory fast as possible. He wanted to do this in order that he could that he could uh, pander to his uh, greater South African dreams and territor- his territorial expansionist dreams. So that's what he was all about at the end of the day. The British, on the other hand, a lot of the British afterwards, after the war, a lot of these British historians that have a look at it, look at his success in terms of did he annihilate the German forces? Was he able to annihilate these German forces? And, 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 and he didn't. And he didn't. So if you judge it by, by some of the British historian standards or the general British generals of that day, then he failed to annihilate the German forces completely. He certainly did. But he managed to conquer the territory. So you ask me if he was a success or not. In terms of the objectives that he set for himself, he was certainly he was certainly a success because by the end of the campaign, when he left, he had already conquered 80 to 90% of the territory and all the major towns. And Letter Forbeck's forces were a shadow of their former selves. And they just conducted a, a nuisance guerrilla warfare from, from, from there on afterwards, which I don't want to minimize because that still cost thousands of lives and resources to try and subdue letter for that. So what, Smuts had a very short tenure. He was there in, 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 uh, for, for uh, I think he started in February 1916, and he left in January 1917. So he was there for a period of 11 months. In 11 months, through, I count them here, let's say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven operational movements, he managed to conquer 90% of the territory in 11 months. Importantly, also, he managed to remove Letter Forbeck from the British territory that, that Letter Forbeck held for one and a, for one and a bit years, which was which was something the British could not tolerate. They could not have. It was the only piece of. If, if uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was the only piece of uh, of English territory that the Germans held during the First World War, and there the Germans were sitting. So there was a political there was a political a British political motive to get them off off uh, 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 British territory quickly, which Smuts did. He managed to do that within the first three weeks after his arrival. So his first operation, which I think is is an absolutely astounding operation. One compares the amount of movement and maneuver on the Western Front, which is maybe a little unfair. We must must probably should look at the Eastern Front in Europe to to, to have a look at some of the movement there. But I mean, I think it's right up there with some of the maneuvers that were happening on the Eastern Front. You're looking at an operation to remove the Germans from the Kilimanjaro area, what they call the the, the Tavita Gap, um, with movements over many hundreds of kilometers. So Jan Smuts instituted a... A, an enveloping maneuver with with two two strategic wings and one operational wing, and he almost, by the way, he almost pulled it off and annihilated the Germans by closing by closing the the the, the two enveloping wings, cutting him off and and forcing him to surrender. Unfortunately, um, the the one wing under the under the generalship of a, of, of a general called Stuart was sluggish, uh, and although Smuts cajoled him all the time to 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 to, to get a move on and get things going, 
he, he wasn't able to keep up with, with Smuts's pace. So from a territorial point of view, he managed in that first in that first operation to remove Letter Forbid totally from, from uh, uh, the British East Africa, and also defenses that, that Letter Forbid had been building for, for formidable defenses for building for the last year, and opened the gateway between Kilimanjaro and the Para Mountains. There was only a, a small little gateway. He opened up that gateway to get into the interior of um, German East Africa. It was an astounding campaign that not too many people know about. And uh, I think he conducted it absolutely brilliantly. And it also is an epitomizes exactly what South African maneuver warfare is all about. And uh, it's a great example of how and where the South Africans learned to fight in the Second World War in, in their East African campaigns later, because they practiced more or less the same type of maneuver warfare that it's much practiced in those days. Um, some of the others, are, 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 I've told you about seven other maneuvers. After this Kilimanjaro operation, um, a lot of these forces now started to feel the disease and, uh, and, 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 and the terrain and the weather effects. And uh, there was a lot of, a, I mean, a lot of men were lost to this type of attrition, uh, had to be sent to the hospitals and that type of thing. He conducted an advance deep into the interior and a very risky thing to do. Absolutely unbelievable and astounding again. Part of his whole maneuvers philosophy, he uh, uh, used his general called Jörg van Geffenter, who was a general who served with him in the Boer War. He knew this general very well, served again with him in, in German Southwest Africa. So you can, you, you can imagine the command structure over there. The two were friends. They knew exactly what each other wanted. And, and this added to the mobility and the maneuver of the whole thing. And all he did was he, he advanced Jörg uh, 200 kilometers to a place called Kondoa Erangi and totally unsettled Letter Forbeck and the German defenses. First of all, taking him by surprise because it's not a move that Letter Forbeck uh, uh, expected and totally unhinged all the German uh, uh, defenses once again. And Letter Forbeck was forced now to counterattack uh, um, uh, Van Deerfinter sitting at Kondoa Erangi and the counterattack was, it was, it was a failure and uh, the Germans lost many, many soldiers that day in, in trying to counterattack and remove uh, Van Deerfinter from Pandora uh, Rundi. So that was a, a, another unbelievable operational maneuver that is little known about. Thereafter, I'm not going to go into each one in detail, but thereafter there were another five uh, huge maneuver battles where most of them were double envelopments and most of them, Leto Forbeck managed through superior mobility because he knew the terrain, Although you wouldn't think that uh, he would have superior mobility against mounted infantry, but he did because when, when, when you are retreating, you're always faster than somebody advancing for, for obvious reasons. He managed to extricate himself uh, most of the times. He came close a couple of times to being, to being encircled and, 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 and losing the battle, but by the skin of his teeth on most of his occasions, he managed to extricate himself. But by the end of it all, after these seven huge maneuvers over a period of 11 months, he had lost uh, 80 to 90 percent of the territory and much of the force that he was operating with Letophobic. So, very interesting campaign, honestly, and it, and it deserves, like I say, uh, uh, it, it, it deserves uh, some exposure. So, where did Smuts learn to do this? That's oh, an interesting question, and it's a question I ask myself with Rommel. Um, where did, where did, was Rommel, was Rommel anything special? And I compare Smuts a lot to Rommel, I must tell you, and not, not for the obvious reasons that you think I'm going to. Rommel, as far as I'm concerned, was a product of the German 
way of war. He was a mere product. He may have been on the extreme, but he was a mere product. In, in fact, what I'm trying to say to you is that many other German generals put in the same position would have conducted themselves like Rommel did, because that is the German way of war. Not going to go too much into it. The same with, with, with Jan Smuts. Jan Smuts didn't arrive in German East Africa with something brand new, a, a newfangled way of war, a maneuverist way of war, uh, sweeping envelopments and that type of thing that he made up on the spur of the moment because he was an intellectual genius. No, this was a South African way of war or becoming a South African way of war, becoming a Union Defence Force way of war. And he most probably can take credit for solidifying this, 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 this doctrine. But it's a doctrine that we can trace back to the German Southwest African campaign. When Boerter did his final envelopment action uh, at a place called Otavi, in German Southwest Africa, and certainly uh, uh, it, it's very similar to the type of developing actions that Smuts was later to practice in German East Africa. So he was a, he was a pupil of Boerter, and he was a pupil in the in the in the in the South African War, in the Anglo Boer War. He was a pupil of a gentleman called General Delaray, who also practiced this type of maneuverist warfare. So he was a pure pupil of a Boer way of war that favoured a manoeuvrous type of approach, that used mounted infantry for mobility, that liked to use the double envelopment, that tried to avoid frontal battles at all costs because they didn't want to waste lives in, in, in un, unneeded attacks that they saw was a futile waste of life. They would rather try and encircle the enemy, get them to run away, and then everybody would live to fight another day. That was the Boer way of war, which Smuts was a product of, which translated into, into a, 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 a South African Union Defence Force way of war. And certainly, I think, I don't think, I mean, if you would turn around and say to me, did the Union Defence Force in German Southwest Africa practice a South African way of war? I'd say no, not yet. It was it 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 was it was the incipient steps to doing it. But certainly, I think Smuts, part of his legacy is going to is, is which I can say is that he he solidified a, a a South African way of war that was used, by the way, in World War II in East Africa again, and also on our border walls. Funny enough, not many uh, generals realised that in the in the South African Defence Force realised why they were manoeuvrists and why they favoured mobility and why they didn't want to do frontal attacks. But it's all part of the South African genetics. So I would say to you, Jan Smuts was, was probably a, 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 a product of his country's way of war rather than being this great intellectual arrived on the battlefield and, 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 and made it all up as he went along. So once Smuts leaves German East Africa, what happens in this theatre of, of combat for the remainder of the war. Very interesting. Uh, he handed over to a gentleman called Hoskins, which was a British general. Hoskins didn't last long. Um, the British, uh, the British and South Africans weren't happy with his conduct. And after a couple of uh, months, Van Deventer came back to take over uh, the Imperial forces. At this stage of the game, not many South Africans remained uh, in the, in the campaign. A lot of them were repatriated in a very bad state due to disease, etc. And the British, uh, following what the Germans were doing, started to recruit uh, uh, black Ascaris into their into their units. And it became uh, 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 the majority of the forces under the British control, under Van Deventer's control, 
poor black troops towards the end because they were more hardy and they were able to, to, to handle the terrain and the diseases better than the white guys had done. Um, when it turned into a, a letterphobic, uh, what all he did was uh, evade and, and conduct a bit of a raiding strategy. So where he, where he got an opportunity to attack and acquire uh, some equipment and that type of thing from the British, he would do so. But his main objective was to survive uh, till the end of the war, attracting as many uh, Allied forces as possible. And he just tried to commit, not to make a nuisance of himself, which he did very, very successfully, because the resources to capture him were certainly out of all proportion to the trouble that he caused at the end of the day. I mean, the British expended uh, uh, quite a lot of resources on it. So that's how he conducted the rest of the war. He he, he uh, went all over the place. He went into north, northern Mozambique. He landed up in Zambia, uh, and, and, and he had his forces chasing him. And it's difficult uh, of this type of terrain where you're talking thousands of kilometers. It's searching for a needle in a haystack. So he was, he was able to evade the British forces for a long, long period, eventually surrendering after the war ended. I think the war ended on November the 11th, and he surrendered sometime after that. And uh, he got the accolades for being, I think, the last German formation surrender. Uh, he did surrender, just showing you how dissipated his forces, forces were. He surrendered with, I think, 1,300. He started off with 20,000 at the beginning of the campaign. 20,000 soldiers, he surrendered with a little over uh, 1,000. But he considered a hero in Germany for holding out that long. And um, the bolt up. I must say, out of all proportion, that also needs to look at, built up out of all proportion as to what he achieved and how great a general he was. Certainly, there's another man who is just a mere product of his of, of his country's way of war, and he's been embraced by historians. Well, now we're seeing a bit of a redress. There is new history on it, and we're seeing a bit of a redress. But certainly, um, up till very, very recently, embraced as an as a, as a unbelievable proponent of guerrilla-type warfare and, uh, and, 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 and amazing generalship and that type of thing. So although he was a wily general, I think he's been overrated. Whereas Smuts has been underrated, and the pendulum needs to swing back a little, I think Letter Forbeck has been overrated, and we need to also have a look at that in the bigger picture. And that leads me to my penultimate question. What is the legacy of Smuts and the campaign in German East Africa? Well, certainly I think I think Smuts managed to elevate South Africa's status uh, as an important and dependable ally um, by undertaking the campaign in German Southwest Africa, which came at great cost to the political situation in South Africa. That caused a rebellion. Um, directly by, 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 by invading German Southwest South Africa caused an Afrikaner rebellion and caused deep fissures in, 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 in South African political society. So he took a great risk there. And once again, he took another risk by going to German East Africa. And uh, certainly, I think the British appreciated it. He was treated as a hero when he arrived in London soon after uh, he was called there uh, from German East Africa. And certainly, he managed to elevate South Africa's status uh, and, and show his loyalty. Uh, he also was managed to build, through this campaign, managed to build greater unity between the South African Afrikaner and Englishmen. Because of the rebellion and because of the history of the South African war, um, there was a rift between Englishmen and Afrikaner. And I think to some extent, this German East African campaign um, repaired some of some of the uh, 
angst between the, the uh, uh, between the two population groups in South Africa. Um, I've already alluded to this, and I think this is important that he developed and solidified the UDF's maneuverist doctrine, which would form the basis of the South African Army modus operandi in uh, in World War II, East Africa, the Western Desert, and later on in the border wars in South Africa. So certainly, the South African military owes a lot to Smuts um, in terms of doctrine, which, by the way, we need to rediscover because we, <laughs> I'm quite involved uh, in, in Army College here and Defence College. And I mean, we don't go that far back to trace our roots. We don't really know where these manoeuvres roots came from. And this is exactly where, 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 where it comes from. And also he gave to the British Empire, importantly, which is forgotten, the continuous stretch of land from Cape to Cairo, which was a dream of Cecil John Rhodes back in the, in the 1900s. And, and uh, quite a lot, of, a lot of it was what all the, 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 the the South African War, the Anglo War was all about. So he managed to deliver that to as a gift to the British Empire. Um, he certainly not only elevate, elevated the state of South Africa within the empire, but he did it on the world stage. Uh, it brought him a seat at the peace conference, uh, boxing way above South Africa's weight, there's no doubt about it. I mean, if you think about it. Um, and uh, certainly at the formation of the League of Nations, he wouldn't have been there unless he had performed these roles in German Southwest Africa and German East Africa and later on in London. So he certainly puts the Africa on the map status-wise. Um, did he achieve his did he achieve his uh, his, his aims? Which which we right in the beginning I said to you his his aim was territorial expansion to create a greater South Africa. And I must say that he but he, he managed to elevate status, but I don't know whether he managed to grab the, 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 the get the territorial acquisitions that he was looking for, because his his supposed trade of German East Africa for parts of Mozambique, where he was going to go to the Portuguese and say, listen, take some of German East Africa, give me some of Mozambique, that never came off. Um, at the end of the day, that 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 was a failure, and we can even say it was German Southwest Africa. Uh, which was part of his legacy, brought more trouble than anything else, but he wasn't able to acquire the ter territory uh, totally. It was offered to South Africa on a mandate basis, and uh, it never became a fifth province of which Jan Spons was looking for. So pretty much a mixed legacy, um, but an interesting legacy that, 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 that needs to be rediscovered. And, and my final question is, where can people learn more about your research? Oh, okay. So you can Google... Uh, David Brock, B-R-O-C-K, David Brock Katz. You can Google my name and you'll see a, a, a lot of what I've published and done it comes up there. And I use my little name because there's a Dr. David Katz who, who is absolutely unbelievably prolific and uh, he puts me in the shade. I mean, he's made something of 5,000 publications. So if I try and look at my citations and it gets mixed up, it looks like I've had 5,000 citations, but they're mixing me up with Dr. Dr. David Katz. So don't get, don't get confused with Medical Dr. David Katz. Look me up on David Brock Katz. Uh, another place that you can look for is academia.edu and ResearchGate. A lot of my research is sitting on there. I will be publishing a book on Jan Smuts and his first great war in the second quarter of uh, 2022. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. And also, I've published a book uh, about uh, the South Africans up, up north in the Western Desert called South African versus uh, Rommel, which discusses, by the way, a lot of the, the, the doctrine that I'm talking about now uh, from a Second World War perspective. Dave, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.